Good morning. It's great to welcome you here again today. If you don't know me, my name is Richard Stamp, one of the leaders here. You are most welcome here this morning, as Gemma has already said. It's my pleasure to welcome my colleague, Matthew Ashton. Matthew's going to take us through the next part of the book of Acts that we're in at the moment. Can we give Matthew a massive round of applause as he comes up to preach? Thank you. Good morning, Gateway Church. Are we good? No, not sure. Not sure. That's fine. Uh, if you want to turn to page 1,122 in the Bible, we're going to open up at Acts chapter 25, and we're going to look at chapter 25 and 26 this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Paul's pre-trial trial this morning, and I'm going to look at it by unpacking it in three ways. We're going to look at by setting the scene and the characters of Paul's world. That's going to be part A. Part B, we're going to look at Paul's response to the world that he's in. And then part C, we're going to look at uh, the world's response to Paul. So the scene, what is the world that's going on for Paul? Paul's response to that world. And then finally, uh, the response of that world to Paul. And I think there'll be a lot of parallels we can draw together this morning. But before I do that, let's just say there are two things an author can do if they want to introduce you to a character or to a scene. They can either tell you directly about that character. So for example, Dr. James is a humble man. And what you might infer from that is that he's humble. But you won't learn anything about the character of Dr. James other than that you've been told he is humble. Or the author can do something else. And they can say Dr. James, on his way home from work on a Thursday, always stops by Petunia's house. And what he gets down, and he plants flowers because Petunia's been ill for many years and she can't, cannot do her own gardening. And so for years and years, his wife has been frustrated because he comes home with mud on his knees because he's always planting petunias flowers on a Thursday. Now, I haven't directly told you that Dr. James is humble, but you might infer from the story your own understanding of his character. And Luke is doing that for us here in chapters 25 and 26. He's not telling us exactly what Paul is doing, what Festus, Agrippa, and the, and the Pharisees or the Jews, but we can infer from the story what's going on. And I would say that's true of your own life too. People can see through someone that goes, I'm humble. Yeah, often it's a cue that they're not. I understand the Trinity. You've never done any theological studies in your life um, or, 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 or things like that. But actually what we, what we do in life is we look at a person's character and we understand them by their actions, don't we? By the world that they live in how they do what they do and why they do what they do. And over time, we can really understand a humble person by their actions. And so I'm saying that because I want you to see yourself as part of Paul's world. I want to see yourself responding to the world around you. I want to see how the world will respond to you too. And we'll draw it together in the conclusion at the end. So let's start here by reading some of the um, verses together. And I will stop off at the end of each part and unpack accordingly. And we're going to start uh, in chapters 24, verses 27. Because there's a little phrase here that I think is important for us and we shouldn't miss. When two years had passed. Just think about that for a moment. In chapters 24, Paul's been in prison under trial how long has he been there for? Two years. And what we'll see here is that Felix has been overtaken by Festus, Festus the new young procurator or governor. And Paul, and while this is going on, they're not sure what to do with Paul. Paul's been there for two whole years. What does that tell you about the character of Paul when we unpack what he does in a moment? Let me ask you this. How frustrated do you feel when you've applied for a new passport and it hasn't arrived for two weeks? 
How frustrated do you feel if things in the workplace aren't going the way you want them to go and they haven't done for some time? How do you respond when that family member just keeps doing the thing that they're doing and they haven't changed? Folks, I would imagine every one of us, if, the, if nothing had changed for two years, we would be grumbly, frustrated, and angry. For two whole years, Paul has sat in prison waiting for things to happen. And I want to encourage some of you now because you are in that space. You do feel bored. You do feel let down. Let down. Maybe you feel like God has forgotten you. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're someone who's stuck in two years of something that hasn't changed, I want to encourage you that God hasn't forgotten about you. God has a plan for you. And if you, need, you need to keep on keeping on with the power of the Spirit through you. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight to ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened a court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against Paul, but they could not prove any of them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, or you, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the Jews brought against me but if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, now to Caesar you will go. So the first thing we see here in, in verses 1 through 12, part of understanding Paul's setting, is we see God's providence in Paul's life. In other words, we see how God is protecting and guarding and helping Paul. In chapters 24, we read that there was a plot to kill Paul. And the way that they were going to do it was to ambush him on the road. And there are many times here that Paul could have gone back on the road from Caesarea to Jerusalem but God's providential hand was stopping that from happening, either through Festus conferring or by Paul appealing to Caesar because he wanted to go to Rome himself. And so what we have here is actually what you see depends on how you look. Paul is stuck in prison, and it's actually saving his life. You might be stuck in something right now, and it's saving your life. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, intellectually, it might be just saving your life, but you don't know it because you're looking at it from a particular point of view. And it's, under, it's important to understand the setting here, that God is in control of all that is happening in Paul's life. But do you believe that God is in control of all that is happening in your life? If you're a Christian, the answer should be yes. It could be yes. Is it yes? 
We mustn't forget that. It's really important. So that's the first thing about Paul's setting. God is in control. And let's introduce some of the characters here. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. Bit of a twist in the tail here. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. Of course you would be. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. He's tickling my ears. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So let's set the scene for Paul's world. So we know God's in control. What about the characters? Well, we have Festus. I want us, as we understand the scene, I want you to picture Paul standing somewhere and all these people are standing around him. And if you can, at some point, see this as yourself. You're standing and all the characters in your life are standing around you. So you have Paul, he's standing and he's trying to give a defense. And you've got Festus. Festus is a young man overtaken as the new governor in town. As we learn from chapters 25 and 26, Festus isn't really intrigued or interested in learning about the religious laws and customs of the Jews. He doesn't really have an opinion um, about what the Jews believe um, or even what Paul is saying. But what he does have an opinion about, um, he has an opinion based upon his lack of reading, based upon his lack of understanding, as we'll notice later, that Paul is out of his mind and he is insane. And some of us have or know those Festus people. These Festus people don't read. They don't like to find out about the religious beliefs that you have, but they have an opinion about you that actually you're probably a little bit uh, one sandwich short of a picnic, one screw loose, or whatever the saying might be. And they'll have those opinions about you. They're the Festuses, often young and sometimes, um, how do I say this, only interested in themselves. And their opinion is what matters most. Then we have King Agrippa, who's in the in the story. And King Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great, which we're introduced to in the Gospels. King Agrippa was well learned in the Jerusalem uh, narrative. He knew the prophecies, he knew the Old Testament. He had a better understanding than Festus. And isn't it interesting that Agrippa, who has a better understanding, who's learned something about it, is actually intrigued to hear more from Paul. And some of you have those people in your life, in the workplace, in your recreational pursuits. They do a little bit of YouTube searching around. You know, they're intrigued, they look at the debates, and actually when you give a, have a beer or have a coffee with them, they're actually intrigued to find out more. That was King Agrippa in the story. And then you also have in the story the Jews, or the Pharisees, which Paul, the words Paul uses. And these people, for Paul, were a difficult people, because these people were charging Paul against the idea that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. They couldn't believe it happened. 
But what's interesting is in the Old Testament, it is filled with the hope for the Israelite nation that their Savior would be resurrected. And, and along with that, they would be resurrected into new life. We see that in Hosea 26, sorry, in Hosea 6, or Isaiah 26. One said it this way, the most faithful Pharisee believed in the resurrection of the dead and saw no fulfillment of Israel's ancestral hope apart from the resurrection. But the amazing and absurd feature of the present dispute was that Paul was being prosecuted for his proclamation of this very hope as prosecuted by the Jews of all people. What do these people represent? We all have these people in our life too. They're just inconsistent. They'll say one thing with their mouth about what they believe in, and it might have a circular argument to it. They believe in it because they believe in it, and they believe in it because of that. And they'll find what is called cognitive dissonance. They'll find evidence, and even though it is completely different to what their worldview is, they'll bend the evidence to suit their worldview. It's called inconsistency. And it's true, Christians can be inconsistent too, and that must be frustrating for those people around us. But Paul has frustrations with these inconsistent Jews, and we all have those people in our life too. You might be an inconsistent Christian. You might be an inconsistent non-Christian. But I wanted to see you as part of representative, as part of Paul's world. Paul had this in his world, and you have it in your world too. But the biggest thing they had against Paul is this. And Festus even knew this, which is helpful, because we hear from this, Paul did not have a speech impediment. And I hope I don't have a speech impediment this morning. Because I want to claim to you very one thing that Festus understood Paul was claiming, and I want to do this morning. Instead, they had some points of dispute with Paul about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed to be alive. Even Festus knew what was Paul's agenda. Jesus is alive. So let's put yourself in this world. It's you. Oh, sorry, one thing I forgot to mention. You have Paul, the character of Paul. Paul is the man who loves Jesus, claiming that Jesus is alive. Enough said. Right, so we'll move on. So you have all these characters, and let's say you've got all these people around you. Will every person in your life, the Festuses, the Agrippas, the inconsistent friends, are they all 100% clear that your life is about this? Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. Do they know that's true of your life? Think about it for a moment. My work colleagues, my gym colleagues, my coffee colleagues... My, my Facebook colleagues, do they all know that this is true? I wonder if that's the case for you. I want to encourage the Christian this morning, because I think sometimes we forget it, and we forget it because our actions display it so. Jesus Christ is alive. When's the last time you looked in the mirror and just knew that was true? Looked at yourself think, Jesus, you're alive. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And Christian, I want you to leave this space this morning like uh, John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Jesus is alive. It's a true story. Paul knew it was true. The Christian knows it's true. That should affect the way that we live. So there's Paul's setting. That's the scene. And hopefully you can find some parallels into your own life. That's part A. Part B, what's Paul's response to this setting or this scene? I'm going to pick it up in 25 verses 20, chapter 25, verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's Agrippa's sister, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, 
and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on, on to Rome without specifying the charges. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. This is an interesting passage here because Paul isn't actually on trial in the sense that he cannot be convicted by Agrippa or Festus at this point. This was a preliminary investigation, and as I've said, not actually a trial. It was purely an unofficial inquiry. The only way that Paul could be trialed was being sent to Caesar in Rome. And so what we have here is almost quite an interesting play. It's not really, in one sense, not much is going on because not much can really happen. But in one sense, a lot is going on because we're understanding how Paul is responding to his world. And what's really important here, and this is why this message, I think, is as much for the Christian this morning as it is for the non-Christian, is that Paul is responding, and he's going to start, and we're here in a moment to give a defense, Right? But he does so based upon what? The authority of who? The king, Agrippa. You have permission to speak for yourself. The king of the land, of Agrippa's land, which was shrinking at that time because of the Roman pursuits, he stands up and says, Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. I was really touched by this in the week, and I feel touched by it this morning. Christian, there is a greater king, than Agrippa. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is alive. And Christian, you have for too long, you have for too long had your voice not being heard in the communities that you live in because you are fearful, you are scared. But King Jesus would say to you this morning, you have permission to speak. You have permission to speak hope to your neighbors, to speak love to your colleagues, you have permission this morning to speak. You have lost your voice. I don't know why, the king would say to you. Maybe because you're afraid. Maybe you've stopped believing that I am alive. But you have permission. And I want every Christian here to leave this morning, not to be afraid of the culture that we live in, but to lovingly know you have permission to speak. You have a lot of good things to say. Say them. Live them. You have permission. Then we press on here. Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Now, I have no idea what the motion of his hand was, but I'm going to suggest something this morning. We're all going to practice it, if that's okay with you. You up for that? Yeah. We're going to go old school Westlife, 1990s. It's when they go from the bridge to the chorus and leave their stools. You all know the scene. You've seen the music videos. They twist it up, and they pull it in, right? <laughs> Should we practice as the church? Let's twist it up. Come on. And pull it in. Now, what I want you to know is this week, when you go out to the next week and you feel like you've lost your permission to speak, when you're feeling downcast or lack of courage, I want you to just do this in front of your colleagues or friends. <laughs> Twist it up and pull it in. Get the mouth movements going, the knee can go up too, and you start looking like Elvis. 
Twist it up and pull it in. I don't know what Paul did, but he did something with his hand. I want that to be a mental thing for you this week, almost um, a metaphor. Do it. Practice it. And know that you've given yourself permission to crack on and speak. So, Paul motioned with his hand. What did he do, folks? (laughs) Praise the Lord. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Interesting there, just pause there for a moment. Paul is, if, I, if Paul was to write a book on sales, I work in sales, but he would be doing the first thing you do when you, when you uh, have faced with an, an objection. It's called APR, acknowledge, probe, and respond. Paul is acknowledging Agrippa. And I would say to you, while that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, um, for you as a Christian living in this world, if someone comes to you with an, an objection, very basic thing to do is just start off by acknowledging. I understand what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. I really appreciate you going into so much detail before you get onto your probe. But what is it you're struggling with? And then your response, Jesus is alive. Let me pray for you. Become a Christian. Here's our membership form. (laughs) Acknowledge. The Jewish people all know the way. I have lived there ever since. Verse 4, I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify. They are willing that I conform to the strictest of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. What's the hope, folks? Jesus is what? He is alive. Come on. This is the promise of our 12 tribes. This, sorry, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You see the probe there. Good, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was obsessed with persecuting them, that I even hunted them down. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the, on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up. Stand on your feet, son. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. So then... King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and they tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. See him talking to the Jews there? that the Messiah would suffer, 
and as the first rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You, Paul, are out of your mind. So we're in Paul's world. This is Paul's response. And I'm running short of time, so I very quickly got to go through this. But one thing I would say to you is Paul was very clear about his story. And Christian, when you're given permission to speak, I would encourage you, like you spend time practicing and learning in other pursuits in life, spend time practicing your story. Why do you love Jesus? What happened at the beginning? When was your changing moment? And what is life like now for you as a result of it? And I'd encourage you to write your story down, be well rehearsed in being able to say it, because there will be a time where you have an opportunity to respond to your world, and you should do it clearly and concisely. And I think that is wise for you to do. And I'll just make a couple of points of reference here. Isn't it interesting how Jesus says that you're persecuting me? You know, when Paul was persecuting his people, you see that wonderful emotional connection between Jesus and his followers. When, you're, when he was persecuting the followers, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That's really interesting. But the last point I want to mention at this point is Paul makes this, he uses an agricultural metaphor when Jesus, uh, sorry, it's written here, it's an agricultural metaphor speaking to Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's the goads? A goads was a sharp stick with a point on the end. And what shepherds or farmers would do is if the animal was going in the direction it shouldn't go, it would prod it. So that, and it would still, you know, keep going around, but prod it, keep prodding it until it would then move into the right direction. And when it was um, hitting the stick, it was kicking against the goads. You know, Jesus would say to some of you this morning, like he said to Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? Stop. You're in here. Stop kicking against the goads. God has been pursuing you for a long time, and you know it's true. But for whatever reason, you're kicking against the goads, and today, salvation is going to come to your house. Don't delay. And then we see Paul in his obedience cracking on with the task. That's Paul's response to his world. And then finally, we see the world's response to Paul. Chapter 26, verses 24. Paul, you're out of your mind. You've lost it. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short or long, Agrippa, I pray to God not only you, but all who are here listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they they began saying to one another, this man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he did not appeal to Caesar. The world's response to Paul, the world's response often to us, you're mad, you're crazy. But be encouraged because how does Paul respond? I'm not insane. What I am saying is reasonable and it's true. Now, friends, I don't have got time this morning to unpack all the reasonableness and truthness of the Gospels. 
and the evidence to suggest that Jesus Christ, in fact, is alive, as we read in the Gospels and as we read in supporting documents, and many commentaries that have been written on the matter, including many manuscripts that have been found over the years. I haven't got the time to do that. That's why with church as a whole lifestyle, not just a Sunday morning, because we run other things on Tuesday nights and other nights throughout the week, where you can explore such matters. But what I want to do this morning, again, is encourage the Christian. What you believe is reasonable and it is true. We've got to stop putting our head in the sand, just trying to make up, you know, what is it, that Mark Twain quote? Some people die at age 27, but they're not buried until they're 70. Let that not be said of your own life. Let's keep living our life with our head not in the sand, but up firm. Lift up your eyes, you're the giver of life. Lift it up. What you believe is reasonable and true, and the king says to you this morning, you have a voice for Paul and Bournemouth. Now use it for my good. And guess what? Along the way, you'll be surprised by joy. You'll have a whale of a great time telling people how much I love them. Festuses will all be in our life. You are mad, but it is not madness. It is considered, it is reasonable, and it is true. There are also Agrippas in our life. They're thinking about it. Are you saying you want me to become a Christian? And Paul's so bold, isn't he? Not just you, Agrippa. The whole lot of you. You might be saying to me, Matthew, are you saying this morning that in one sermon, in 30 minutes' time, you're telling me you want me to become a Christian this morning? Absolutely, yes. Behold and said, not just you, your sister, your brother, your mother, your uncle, your auntie, your neighbor, your work colleagues. I want them all to become Christians, don't you? Whether it takes 30 minutes, 30 years, we're going to live our life. And I would say to some of you this morning, stop kicking against the goads again. I really thought that was a message for some of you this morning. Stop kicking against the goads. Choose to believe what Paul is preaching, what we believe here at Gateway Church, that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, folks, let me conclude with this, because this is a pre-trial trial that Paul is facing. And like I've said right at the beginning, you know, we can picture ourselves like this, and we have all these people around us, all the characters in the scene. And this is the life that we're living. You know, but I guess like Paul, there's going to be one day where we're going to face an ultimate trial. The Bible teaches that there'll be one day where we stand before the Father in heaven, the God of the Bible, and we'll have to give an account for our whole life. And we're going to have to stand trial. And God will say, tell me, what did you do? And that's going to be not a pre-trial trial. That's real deal stuff. But God will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous. And what's going to happen is we're going to stand there and we're going to give an account for our lives. I'm going to tell God, like Paul did right from the beginning, I did this, I was obedient, I did this. And God will look at it and go, it's not good enough. The greatest works, they're like filthy rags. There's a problem. You can't be in my presence. You're sinful. And some of you might say, the objection off to this point is, how close-minded of the Christian to believe that the God of the Bible is so exclusive. Surely he's a good God and he'll allow all people to come to the kingdom, right? That's what love is. He'll allow all people to come to the kingdom. Folks, before you make judgment on God like Festus did without knowing, 
Let me say this to you. If you were to stand trial at the end of your life and you were to be acquitted, innocent or guilty, not based upon God's standards, but by your own standards, you wouldn't even make it. One preacher said this. He said, if I was to take an invisible box and plant it right under your, right here, from the moment you were born, and all it did for your whole life was to record all the advice that you gave people from age zero to the day you passed away, and I was to take that recording, I'll put it on the table, this little tiny box, and hit the play, and say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll judge you by your own standards. None of you would make it. Yet we're so quick to tell God that he's not good and love and just. We won't live up to your own standards. But here's the good news. Because there's a greater Paul in this story, and his name is Jesus, and he is alive. And before the Father in heaven, he stands and he says, Father, I will take all the things that they have done wrong against you and against me. I'm taking it upon myself. All those things. I'm giving to them my righteousness. Father, they're innocent because my blood was shed on that cross. And because I rose again, I did it for them. And so the Father would look at you and declare you righteous because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because Christian, he is alive. Amen? Why don't we stand and respond to this before we sing. We're going to pray. We're going to open up our hands. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do something like the wind was doing at Whitecliffe Park this morning, just blowing things all over the place. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and do that in our lives. Blow away some cobwebs. Give us some boldness and some courage. And just let us see that we have permission to speak this morning. We have a voice. There are some of us here who need to stop kicking against the goads this morning. I'm going to pray that if that's you, you will come and meet with, have a chat with Richard or one of the leaders or elders here and say, I've been kicking against the goads and I want to confess today for the first time I believe Jesus is alive and I want to have a relationship with him. We want to open up our hands. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We want to thank you that you're present amongst us as we've been unpacking the scriptures, declaring that Jesus is alive. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're working in some of our hearts this morning. Some of us have lost our boldness and courage, and you're filling us up this morning with fresh boldness and courage because we have a voice. Holy Spirit, you're working in some of us who have been kicking against the goads, and today we, you're going to tell them no more. Today is the day you confess that Jesus is alive, and you're going to walk in a fresh new relationship. Holy Spirit, come and be present amongst us. If that's you, if you want to respond in one of those two ways, do it by singing with your <laughs> fullest of hearts. Sing it with a loud voice and come and speak to somebody where you can pray a prayer with. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.